This is Allie and the crew from Cool Facts About Animals wishing Strange Animals Podcast a happy 100th episode. Happy 100th episode to you. Happy 100th episode to you. Happy 100th episode, Strange Animals Podcast. Happy 100th episode to you. Strange Animals Podcast. Welcome to Strange Animals Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Shaw. This is our 100th episode, not counting the two bonus episodes. I'll be playing clips from some of my favorite animal podcasts throughout the show, and I highly recommend all of them if you don't already listen. For our big 100 show, I've decided to cover several animals. Some mysterious, some not so mysterious, but all interesting. But we'll start with one that just seems to fit with the 100th episode, the centipede, because centipedes are supposed to have 100 legs. So do they have 100 legs? They don't. Different species of centipede have different numbers of legs, from only 30 to something like 300. Centipedes have been around for some 430 million years, and there are thousands of species alive today, so that's a lot of legs. A centipede has a flattened head with a pair of long mandibles and antennae. The body is also flattened and made up of segments, a different number of segments depending on the centipede species, but at least 15. Each segment has a pair of legs, except for the last two segments, which have no legs. The first segment's legs project forward, and end in sharp claws with venom glands. These legs are called forcipules, and they actually look like pinchers. No other animal has forcipules, only centipedes. The centipede uses its forcipules to capture and hold prey. The last pair of legs points backwards and sometimes look like tail stingers, but they're just modified legs that act as sensory antennae. Each pair of legs is a little longer than the pair in front of it which helps keep the legs from bumping into each other when the centipede walks. Like other arthropods, the centipede has to molt its exoskeleton to grow larger. When it does, some species grow more segments and legs. Others hatch with all the segments and legs they'll ever have. The centipede lives throughout the world, even in the Arctic and in deserts, which is odd because the centipede's exoskeleton doesn't have the wax-like coating that other insects and arachnids have. As a result, it needs a moist environment so it won't lose too much moisture from its body and die. It likes rotten wood, leaf litter, soil, especially soil under stones, and basements. Some centipedes have no eyes at all, many have eyes that can only sense light and dark, and some have relatively sophisticated compound eyes. Most centipedes are nocturnal. Many centipedes are venomous, and their bites can cause allergic reactions in people who also react to bee stings. Usually, though, a centipede bite is painful, but not dangerous. Small centipedes can't bite hard enough to break the skin. I'm using bite in a metaphorical way, of course, since scorpions bite using their forcipules, which, as you'll remember, are actually modified legs, not jaws or mouth parts. The largest centipedes alive today belong to the genus Scolopendra. 
This genus includes the Amazonian giant centipede, which can grow over a foot long, or 30 centimeters. It's reddish or black with yellow bands on the legs and lives in parts of South America and the Caribbean. It eats insects, spiders, including tarantulas, frogs and other amphibians, small snakes, birds, mice, and other small mammals, and lizards. It's even been known to catch bats in midair by hanging down from cave ceilings and grabbing the bat as it flies by. Because it's so big, its venom can be dangerous to children. A four-year-old in Venezuela died in 2014 after being bitten by one, but this is unusual, and bites generally only lead to a few days of pain, fever, and swelling. You'll often hear that the Amazonian giant centipede is the longest in the world, but this isn't actually the case. Its close relation, the Galapagos centipede, is substantially longer. The Galapagos Islands have everything. The Galapagos centipede can grow 17 inches long, or 43 centimeters, and is black with red legs. Another member of Scolopendra is the waterfall centipede, which grows a mere 8 inches long, or 20 centimeters, but which is amphibious. The waterfall centipede was only discovered in 2000, when entomologist George Beccoloni was on his honeymoon in Thailand. Naturally, he was poking around looking for bugs, and I trust that his spouse was aware that that's what he would do on his honeymoon when he spotted a dark greenish-black centipede with long legs. It ran into the water and hid under a rock, which he knew was extremely odd behavior for a centipede. They need moisture, but they avoid entering water. Beccoloni noted that the centipede was able to swim in an eel-like manner. He captured it and later determined it was a new species. Only four specimens have been found so far in various parts of South Asia. Beccoloni hypothesizes that it eats insects and other small animals found in the water. There are stories of huge centipedes found in the depths of jungles throughout the world. Centipedes longer than a grown man is tall. These are most likely tall tales, since centipedes breathe through tiny notches in their exoskeleton like other arthropods and don't have proper lungs. As we learned in the spiders episode a few months ago, arthropods just can't get too big or they can't get enough oxygen to live. But some of the stories of huge unknown centipedes have an unsettling ring of truth. There are stories from the Ozark Mountains in North America about centipedes that grow as long as 18 inches, or almost 46 centimeters. Historian Silas Claiborne Turnbow collected accounts of giant centipede encounters in the 19th century, which are available online. I'll put a link in the show notes, if you want to read the originals. All the accounts come across as truthful and not exaggerated at all. I think it's worth it to read the last few paragraphs of the centipedes chapter of Turnbow's manuscript verbatim, because they're really interesting, and I kept finding garbled accounts of the stories in various places online. Whenever possible, go to the primary source. Quote, R. M. Jones of near Protum, Missouri, tells of finding a centipede once imprisoned in a hollow tree. Mr. Jones said that after his father, John Jones, settled on the flat of land on the east side of Big Buck Creek in the southeast part of Taney County, his father told him one day in the autumn of 1861 to split some rails to build a hog pen. 
Going out across the pond hollow onto the flat of land, he felled a post oak tree one and one half feet in diameter. There was a small cavity at the butt of the tree. After chopping off one rail cut, he found that the hollow extended only four or five feet into the rail cut and was perfectly sound above it. After splitting the log open, he was astonished at finding a centipede eight inches in length, coiled in a knot in the upper part of the cavity. At first, there appeared to be no life about it. I took two sticks, said he, and unrolled it and found that it was alive. It was wrapped around numerous young centipedes which were massed together in the shape of a little ball. The old centipede was almost white in color. After a thorough examination of the stump and the ground around it, I found no place where the centipede could have crawled in. Neither in the log was there any place where it could enter. How it got there I am not able to explain, and how long it had been an inhabitant there is another mystery to me. William Patton, who settled on Clear Creek in Marion County, Arkansas in 1854 and became totally blind and is dead now, says that one day while his eyesight was good, he was in the woods on foot stalk hunting. When about one and a half miles west of where the village of Palno is, he noticed something a short distance from him crawl into a hollow tree at the ground. On approaching the tree to identify the object, remarked Mr. Patton, I saw a monster centipede lying just on the inside of the hollow, which was the object I had just observed crawl into the tree. I placed the muzzle of my rifle near the opening and shot it nearly in twain, and taking a long stick, I pulled it out of the hollow and finished killing it with stones. I had no way of measuring it accurately, but a close estimation proved that it was not less than 14 inches long and over an inch wide. The biggest centipede found in the Ozarks that I have a record of was captured alive by Bent Music on Jimmy's Creek in Marion County in 1860. Henry Onstott, an uncle of the writer, and Harvey Laughlin, who was a cousin of mine, kept a drugstore in Yelville and collected rare specimens of lizards, serpents, spiders, horned frogs, and centipedes and kept them in a large glass jar which sat on their counter. The jar was full of alcohol, and the collection was put in the jar for preservation as they were brought in. Amongst the collection was the monster centipede mentioned above. It was of such unusual size that it made one almost shudder to look at it. Bryce Millam, who was a merchant at Yelville when Mr. Music brought the centipede to town, says that he assisted in the measuring of it before it was put in the alcohol and its length was found to be 18 inches. That's about 45 centimeters. That's a big bug. It attracted a great deal of attention and was the largest centipede the writer ever saw. The jar with its contents was either destroyed or carried off during the heat of the war. That would be the American Civil War. Henry Onstott died in Yelville and is buried in the old cemetery one half mile west of town. Unquote. There are large centipedes around the Ozarks, including the red-headed centipede that can grow over 8 inches long, or 20 centimeters. A hiker was bitten by a 6-inch red-headed centipede a few years ago in southwestern Missouri and had to be treated at a hospital. The red-headed centipede mostly stays underground during the day, although it will come out on cloudy days. It has especially potent venom and lives in the southwestern United States and northern Mexico. And interestingly, females guard their babies carefully for a few days after they hatch. 
Since the red-headed centipede is a member of the genus Scolopendra, the ones that grow so long, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if individuals sometimes grow much longer than eight inches. One story of a giant centipede called the Upa turned out to have a much different solution. Naturalist Jeremy Holden was visiting a village in western Sumatra in the early 2000s when he heard stories of the Upa. It was supposed to be a green centipede that grew up to about a foot long, or 30 centimeters, and had a painful bite. It was also supposed to make an eerie yowling sound like a cat. Holden discounted this as ridiculous, since no centipedes are known to make vocalizations of any kind, until he actually heard one. He was in the forest with a guide who insisted that this was the upa. The sound came from high up in the treetops, so Holden couldn't see what was making it. But on a later trip to Sumatra with a birdwatcher friend, Holden heard the same sound, but this time the friend knew exactly what was making it. It wasn't a centipede at all, but a small bird called the Malaysian Honey Guide. The Honey Guide has a distinctive cat-like call followed by a rattling sound, but is extremely hard to spot, even for seasoned bird watchers with powerful binoculars. This is what a Malaysian Honey Guide sounds like, if you're curious. The worst kind of centipede is the house centipede. I hate those things. I'd rather have a pet spider that lives in my hair than touch a house centipede. House centipedes are the really fast ones that have really long legs that sort of make them look like evil feathers running around on the walls. Hey, it's Mackin from the Species Podcast. I just wanted to check in and congratulate the Strange Animals podcast on hitting 100 episodes. That's a massive achievement. We're all hoping for another 100. Congratulations. Next, let's take a look at the Kupri, a bovine that is rare and possibly extinct. Thanks to Simon, who suggested this one ages ago, after the Mystery Cattle episode, or at least he mentioned it to me while we were talking on Twitter. The Kupri is a wild ox from Southeast Asia and may be closely related to the aurochs. It's big and can stand over six feet tall at the shoulder, or almost two meters. It has long legs, a slightly humped back, and a long tail. Males have horns that look like typical cow horns, but females have horns that spiral upward like antelope horns. Cows and calves are gray with darker bellies and legs, while grown bulls are dark brown with white stockings. It lives in small bands led by a female and eats grass and other plants. Males are usually solitary or may band together in bachelor groups. It likes open forest and low forested hills. Sometimes it grazes with herds of buffalo and other types of wild ox. The Kupri wasn't known to science until 1937, when a bull was sent to a zoo in Paris from Cambodia. It was already rare then. A 2006 study that showed the Kupri was actually a hybrid of a domestic cow and another species of wild ox, the Bantang, was later rescinded by the researchers as inaccurate. Genetic studies have since proven that the hybrid hypothesis was indeed wrong. Unfortunately, if the Kupri still exists, there are almost none left. In the late 1960s, only about 100 were estimated to still remain. While it's protected, it is poached for meat and horns, 
and is vulnerable to diseases of domestic cattle and habitat loss. The last verified sighting of a kupri was in 1983, and there are no individuals in captivity. But conservationists haven't given up yet. They continue to search for the kupri in its historical range, including setting camera traps. Since the kupri looks very similar to other wild oxen, it's possible there are still some hiding in plain sight. Hi Kate, it's Susie here from the Casual Birder podcast. Congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. That's such an awesome achievement. I love your show and hearing about the different animals you feature, especially the spooky or mythological ones. Thanks so much for a brilliant show, and here's to the next 100 episodes. Next up, let's look at a rare owl. Thanks to Julia, who suggested the Carthala Scops owl, which only lives in one place in the world. That one place in the world happens to be an active volcano. Specifically, it lives on the island of Grand Comore between Africa and Madagascar in the forest on the slopes of Mount Carthala. It's a small owl with a wingspan of only 18 inches or 45 centimeters. Some of the owls are grayish brown and some are dark brown. It probably eats insects and small animals, but not much is known about it. It's critically endangered due to habitat loss, as more and more of its forest is being cut down to make way for farmland. It sounds like this, and if you don't think this is adorable, I just can't help you. The Carthala scopsel wasn't discovered by science until 1958, when an ornithologist named C.W. Benson found a feather lining a sunbird nest. He thought it might be a nightjar feather, but it turned out to belong to an unknown owl. At first, researchers thought it was a subspecies of the Madagascar scops owl, but it's now considered to be a new species. Unlike many other scops owl species, the Carthala scops owl doesn't have ear tufts. That's pretty much all that's known about the Carthala scops owl right now. Researchers estimate that there are around 1,000 pairs living on the volcano and hopefully conservation efforts can be put into place to protect their habitat. Hey Kate, it's Corbin Maxey from the Animals to the Max podcast. I just want to say congratulations on your 100th episode. Man, I can't believe it. The uh, Strange Animals podcast was actually the very first animal podcast I ever listened to, and I still enjoy listening to it every single week. So thank you so much for uh, you know just inspiring us and bringing us good content, and here's to another 100 episodes. Congratulations. Next, the sea mouse has been on my ideas list from the beginning, so let's learn a little bit about it today, too. It's not a mouse, although it does live in the sea. It's actually a genus of polychaete worm that lives along the coasts of the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean, although it doesn't really look like a worm. It looks kind of mouse-like, if you're being generous, mostly because it has sedi, or hair-like structures on its back that look sort of like fur. Some species grow up to a foot long, or 30 centimeters, but most are usually smaller, maybe half that size or less. It's shaped roughly like a mouse with no head or tail, and is about 3 inches wide, or 7.5 centimeters at its widest. The sea mouse is usually a scavenger, although at least one species hunts crabs and other polychaete worms. 
It spends a lot of its time burrowing in the sand or mud on the ocean bed, looking for decaying animal bodies to eat. It also has gills and antennae, although these aren't readily noticeable because of the setae covering the animal's back. Underneath the setae, the sea mouse is segmented. It doesn't have real legs, but it does have appendages along its sides called parapodia, which it uses like little leglets to push itself along. Sometimes a sea mouse is found washed ashore after a storm. Often, then, it scurries through the wet sand and looks even more like a mouse. The most interesting thing about the sea mouse is its setae. The setae are about an inch long and are dark red, yellow, black, or brown under ordinary circumstances, depending on species. But when light shines on them just right, they glow with green and blue iridescence. The setae are hollow and made of chitin. They're also much thinner than a human hair, and nanotech researchers have used them to create nanowires. I don't know what nanowires are. Hey, Kate, it's Paul, host of the Varmints Podcast, congratulating you on 100 episodes of the Strange Animals Podcast. I have been with you through all 100 episodes. I love all 100 of them. It's what I look forward to on Monday mornings. And here's to another 1,000 episodes. Take care. Here's a little mystery animal I got from one of my favorite books, Carl Schuker's Search for the Last Undiscovered Animals. In 1858, French missionary Emmanuel Dominic published a book called Missionary Adventures in Texas and Mexico, a personal narrative of six years' sojourn in those regions. And in that book, he mentions an interesting animal. This event apparently took place in or near Fredericksburg, Texas, sometime before about 1850. The woman in question may have been Comanche. I'll quote the relevant passage from pages 122 and 123 of Dominic's book. Quote, An American officer assured me that he had seen an Indian woman dressed in the skin of a lion which she had killed with her own hand, a circumstance which manifested on her part no less strength than courage. For the lion of Texas, which has no mane, is a very large and formidable animal. I'm going to jump in here and point out that that is not actually a lion. might be a mountain lion, probably. might be a jaguar. Also, it's not the animal in question. This next part is. Okay, continuing the quote now. This woman was always accompanied by a very singular animal about the size of a cat, but of the form and appearance of a goat. Its horns were rose-colored, its fur was of the finest quality, glossy like silk and white as snow, but instead of hoofs, this little animal had claws. This officer offered 500 francs for it, and the commandant's wife, who also spoke of this animal, offered a brilliant of great value in exchange for it, but the Indian woman refused both those offers and kept her animal, saying that she knew a wood where they were found in abundance and promised that if she ever returned again, she would catch others expressly for them, unquote. So what could this strange little animal be? It sounds like a mountain goat. Mountain goats live in mountainous areas of western North America, but might well have been unknown elsewhere in the mid-19th century. They're pure white with narrow black horns and hooves, but an albino individual might have horns that appear to be pinkish, at least at the base where the horn core is, due to lack of pigment in the horns allowing blood to show through the surface. While male mountain goats can grow more than three feet tall at the shoulder, or one meter, 
Females are much smaller and have smaller horns. Most tellingly, mountain goats have sharp dew claws as well as cloven hooves that can spread apart to provide better traction on rocks. To someone not familiar with mountain goats, this could look like claws rather than hooves. My guess is the woman had a young mountain goat she was keeping as a pet, possibly an albino one, which would explain its size and appearance. It's nice to think that she cared so much for her little pet that she refused huge amounts of money for it. Hi, Strange Animals Podcast listeners. It's Joe and Carlos from Life, Death, and Taxonomy. As fellow lovers of the weird and amazing things the animal kingdom has to offer, we want to congratulate Kate on 100 wonderful episodes. So happy 100, and here's to 100 more. Let's finish up with a rare and tiny cephalopod called the hairy octopus. It's only two inches across, or five centimeters, and is covered with strands of tissue that give it its name. The so-called hair of the hairy octopus camouflages it by making it look like a piece of seaweed or algae. It can also change colors like other octopuses can to blend in even more with its surroundings. It can appear red, brown, cream, or white, with or without spots and other patterns. It's only ever been seen in the Limba Strait off the coast of Indonesia, and then only rarely. It's so rare, in fact, that it still hasn't been formally described by science. So if you're thinking about becoming a biologist, and you find cephalopods like octopus and squid interesting, this might be the field for you. You might get to give the hairy octopus its official scientific name one day. Thanks so much to all of you. Whether you're a fellow podcaster, a Patreon subscriber, a regular listener, or someone who just downloaded your first episode of Strange Animals Podcast to see if you like it. I'm having a lot of fun making these episodes, and I'm always surprised at how many people tell me they enjoy listening. I tend to forget anyone listens at all, so whenever I get an email or a review or someone tweets to me about an episode, I'm always startled and pleased. I've been trying hard to make the show's sound quality better lately, and while I don't always have the time to do as much research for each episode as I'd like, I do my best to make sure all the information I present is up to date and as accurate as possible. As always, you can find Strange Animals Podcast online at strangeanimalspodcast.com. We're on Twitter at Strange Beasties and have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash strangeanimalspodcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, email us at strangeanimalspodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to support us that way. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year! When an ornithologist named C.W. Benson found a feather living... Oh, (laughs) there was not a feather living in a sunbird nest.